Well, good morning. My name is Ellis. I'm one of the pastors here at Chapel Hill. It's great to be with you here this morning. This weekend is MLK weekend, and I was reflecting this week that on August 28th, 1963, 250,000 people from across the country gathered on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. to hear Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous I have a dream speech. And the organizers for this event, they didn't send out 250,000 invitations. There wasn't a website that people could check to find out when and what was happening. And yet, a quarter of a million people showed up on a hot summer's day in August at the right place, at the right time, and made history. MLK was an influencer. We're uh, carrying on in our Instagram Jesus series this morning, snapshots from the gospel of Mark, and I want to speak to you about influencers. As I said, MLK was an influencer. He drew large crowds of people, and he influenced a, a revolution that took place in the way we understand who human beings are. Today, you don't have to gather large crowds in a physical space if you just want to draw a crowd. We have the power of social media and the internet at our fingertips. You can gather crowds in a virtual space. I came across a term recently which most of us are probably unfamiliar with, and that is social media influencers. Who's heard of social media influencers in here? Yeah, like four of you. Good. Social media influencers are, are people who, over social media channels like YouTube or Instagram, hold a great degree of influence over other people. And they're not people that you're going to have heard of. You're not going to see them on the TV. You're not going to read about them in the newspapers. But these men and women hold incredible influence over Generation Z. That's the generation behind me, the ones who are in high school and middle school and grade school right now. I looked up a few of them this week to give you some examples just to show that you've never heard of them because I'd never heard of them. Huda Katan is one. She's an Iraqi-American makeup artist and beauty blogger. And she has 31.5 million followers on Instagram. That's 31.5 million people who get daily updates from her about how to apply their makeup. Lele Pons is another. She's a 22-year-old Venezuelan, and I googled her to find out well, what does she do. She is, according to Google, quote, an internet personality. Okay, that's a thing, all right? And because of that, she has 32.3 million followers on Instagram, even more than Huda Katan. And it's not just women. Zach King is a 28-year-old from Portland who does magic tricks. He has 21.4 million people who follow his Instagram page. Now, of course, the marketers have cottoned onto this, and they've realized, you know what? If we send our products to these people, and they make just one positive post on social media about our products, we'll have reached three times as many people as a primetime TV commercial slot. And so these social media influencers, they don't have any other jobs. This is what they do. They post on social media, and they get paid to do it. And our kids have figured out that this is probably a fun way to spend your life. A recent survey found that more than half of kids aged 6 through 17, when they grow up, want to be either a YouTuber or a blogger slash vlogger. 
social media influencers have incredible influence over the upcoming generation. And nowadays, to amass a large-scale following, you don't need to hold a rally on the National Mall. You just need to post a few videos and pictures from your bedroom. Two weeks ago, we heard from Pastor Mark about an influencer. He was a man named John. He lived 2,000 years ago in modern-day Israel. And we read these words in Mark chapter 1, that, that all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him. For that day and for that age, John was an influencer. He'd amassed the following. People were were flocking to see him. But who was he? Who was this John who was holding a a regional religious revival? This morning I want to ask three questions, and that's the first one that I want to look at. Who was John? And this was a question that was being asked all around the people at that point in time. They were all trying to figure out who he was. We're in Mark's gospel for this series, but if we turn to John's gospel, we find a parallel account of John's ministry. And it's there that we read that the Jews sent priests and Levites, that is, they sent the religious leaders from Jerusalem to ask, who is this young man who's holding so much influence over the people? It's exactly the same question I was asking when I was researching these social media influences. And as I started to think about it, I realized that the truth is the public image that we portray of ourselves, which nowadays mostly our public image comes through social media, through the internet, that public image that we portray of ourselves is very rarely the true image of who we are. Let me demonstrate it this way. On uh, the Sunday of Thanksgiving weekend, I posted this picture on Instagram. And some of you saw it, some of you liked it. Thank you for liking it. And as you can see, it's my three-year-old, Ezra, who's asleep in a stroller. And you saw that and you probably thought, wow, Ellis must be having a wonderful Sunday afternoon walk. It's a, it's a sunny day outside. I bet he put his son in the stroller, and as they were moving along to the gentle movement of the stroller, his son began to doze off ever so quietly. And then he snapped a picture and put it on Instagram to share with everyone. Now, that's the reality that social media portrays. That's, that's the public image that's out there of my life. I'm going to tell you what actually happened that afternoon. I'd led worship at all three of our weekend services because Gunnar went off to see his family, and I was exhausted, okay? I crashed on Sunday afternoon, and my kids did not crash. They were driving me up the wall. It was sunny, so I said, we've just got to get out, all right? So I said to the kids, we're going out for a walk, and my son lost it. He did not want to go out for a walk, and so he threw a mega tantrum. He was screaming on the floor. I was forcing his shoes onto his feet, trying to get him out the door. Eventually, I picked him up, and he's, he's three, but it still works. I started rocking him like a baby, like this. And within two minutes, he was out. I threw him in the stroller, snapped a photo, and put it on Instagram so that you could all... <laughs> Social media, our our public profile, isn't a real portrayal of ourselves. And the religious leaders knew that that must be true as well about John. They're seeing his public profile and they're hearing the people talk about him. 
People, people trying to guess, who is this guy? And, and they were centering their guesses around three main answers. There were, there were three prophecies that were found in the Old Testament, and that's the first two-thirds of the Bible, that talked about people who were going to come and they were going to be something special. Some people were saying that John was the prophet. This was a person who was uh, talked about by Moses. Moses said, this is someone greater than I is going to come, a prophet. Other people were saying, oh, maybe he's Elijah. Maybe John's Elijah. If you remember the story of Elijah, Elijah didn't die. He got caught up in chariots of fire and went to heaven. And there was a prophecy that Elijah would come back. And so some people were saying, maybe John's Elijah. And then there were other people who were saying that John might be this other person. If you haven't heard of those first two, you've probably heard of this one. They were saying, maybe John's the Christ or the Messiah. The Christ was God's chosen king to rescue his people. And so the people are guessing, they're trying to figure out who John was. And really, John could have, could have used this public persona that he had to tell people that he was any one of these three individuals. And most people probably would have believed him. I mean, he'd amassed such a great following that he could have claimed it. And yet, when the religious leaders came from Jerusalem to ask him, we read this in John chapter 1. Who are you, they asked. And he confessed. John confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. John denied that he was any of those three important people, despite what his public image might have shown. And you know, I've realized something about this. When we have success in the world's eyes, it can be really tempting to believe that what people are saying about us is the truth. It can be really tempting to believe that our public image, our social media image, is the reality of who we are. We just celebrated as a church an amazing year, truly incredible. In the, in the second half of last year, we had 200 more people in worship every weekend than we had done in the previous year. We saw 67 people make decisions to follow Jesus last year, more than we've had in many years. We had over 300 people come to Alpha. Last week, we had 120 more people coming to Alpha. We've seen amazing things happen. And when things like that are happening, it can be really tempting to start to believe, wow, things are really, um, this is working. Maybe, maybe we're someone special. Maybe, maybe, we're, maybe we're something. And I wonder if John was beginning to think the same thing. He's hearing these people say, maybe he's the Christ. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe, he's the, maybe John was going, maybe I am one of those guys. I mean, how would you know? And yet, John didn't believe that the public image of himself was necessarily the true image of who he was. And so the religious leaders had to ask him again, who are you? And this is what John said. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. John knew who he truly was. He, he quoted from another prophecy, but 
not a prophecy about a big name personality. This was a prophecy about a voice. It's a prophecy that is quoted in all four Gospels. And we find it in, in, in the Gospel of Mark in verse 3 of chapter 1. And that's kind of where I want us to stay for the rest of our time. This is what Mark 1.3 says. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John knew that his public image was not his true image. That he was simply a voice called to prepare the way. For the Lord. Now, the original context of this verse is in the Old Testament book of prophecies from a man named Isaiah. And if you've ever read Isaiah, you know that for 39 chapters, it's pretty much doom and gloom. It doesn't look good for the people of God or the surrounding nations. And then when you get to chapter 40, which is where this verse comes from, all of a sudden it's like a, a breath of fresh air in a sweaty men's locker room. Suddenly, the tone of everything changes. And God starts to prophesy through Isaiah that the war is over. The battle has been won. Israel's sins have been forgiven. And God is coming to rescue them and bring him back to, bring them back to himself. And it's in this context of Isaiah 40 that we read These words, verse 3 of Isaiah 40, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. See, John knew that that in the midst of this this grand and beautiful story of, of the rescue of God, that he had a role to play. And John knew that his role was to be that voice. That voice crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. John knew that that he wasn't to be the rescuer, that he wasn't to be the savior, even if other people thought that was what he was going to be. John knew that his role was to be a voice crying out, rescue is here. Prepare the landing strip. He's coming in hot. John knew that he wasn't the Messiah, that he was just a messenger. That he wasn't the saviour, he was just a speaker. And that he wasn't the victorious one, he was just a voice. John knew who he was. And John's response to that question leads me to the second question I want to ask this weekend. And that is, who are you? Just over a year ago, my family and I got stuck in England because our U.S. visa got denied. And during that time, I got the opportunity to preach on this passage in my home church, in in my hometown of Marlow. And as I was preparing the message, I, I came under a great sense of conviction about the way John had responded to this question. You see, I was in this situation of having a visa denied and not being able to come back here And I had begun to believe that it was all my fault and it was all my responsibility to get myself out of it. I'd begun to blame myself for everything that had happened and I'd begun to think and believe that I could network or phone call or email or stay up late enough working hard enough or strategize enough my way out of this situation and get us back to the U.S., 
And I began to see, as I was reading these words of John, that actually I believed I was going to be my own savior in this situation. And as I read those words, I was brought under a great sense of conviction about who I was. I had to remind myself that God's the savior. God's the rescuer. God's the one who can snap his fingers and solve this problem. You see, that question, who are you, is a challenge to all of us. Because many of us, in our own unique ways, act like we are the Christ, like we are the rescuer, like we are the healer, like we're God's chosen one in this situation to solve all the problems. It's a challenge to those of us who are parents, who believe that we can fix every spiritual problem that our kids might be having. It's a, cha- a challenge to those of us who are, who are husbands or fathers who believe that, that we can provide for our family's every need. It's a challenge to those of us who are mothers who think that we can protect our kids from every bad thing that is going to happen to them. It's a challenge to single people who think that they can get rid of this deep sense of loneliness by giving themselves away again and again and again. It's a challenge to churches who believe that they can strategize their way to building the kingdom of God. It's a challenge to business leaders who believe that through their plans, through their work and their effort, they can build their business empire. It's a challenge to every single one of us who trusts ourselves more than we trust Jesus. Because the truth is that just like John, you and I are not the Christ. But here's the good news. There is a Christ, and he is so much better than we can even comprehend. See, the Christ is God, and he was with God in the very, very beginning. All things were created in him and through him. In him, all things hold together. He's before all things, and the Christ became flesh And lived amongst us, walked in our shoes. And he ushered in the reign of the kingdom of God, breaking the power of the reign of the kingdom of darkness. And he died a death on a cross, breaking the power of sin over our lives. And then he rose again to new life, breaking the power of death over us. And he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. And one day he will come again to bring justice on this earth, to make all things new. We have a Christ, and his name is Jesus. And we do not need to replace him in our lives. And so when we sense the darkness coming in, when we sense the pressure rising, when we sense the anxiety beginning to boil inside us, we've got to remember, I am not the Christ. I am not God's chosen one to fix and solve the problems of this situation. Even if the people around me are saying, you've got to fix it, you've got to solve it, you've got to sort it out. I am not the one who is tasked with doing that. That is not my calling. That is Jesus' calling. And when we start with that realization, do you know what it does? It prepares the way for Jesus to come. It prepares the way for him to invade our life by his Holy Spirit, to bring his peace, to bring his light, and ultimately to bring his solution to whatever it is that we're facing. And his solution is always better than our solution. There are many of us here this weekend who need to hear that message, that you are not the Christ. You don't have to be the Savior You don't have to be the rescuer. 
You don't have to solve the problems of your life or your family or your world. And that is a message of freedom. That is a message that takes the burden of responsibility off of our backs. You simply need to prepare the way for Jesus to come in and he will do what he does. Who was John? Who are you? There's a third question I want to ask this morning. And that's who are we? I think that this passage speaks about more than just this this struggle of self-salvation of which we've been talking about. I think this passage speaks to who we are as the community of God. And I believe that God has called us as a community to prepare the way for him to come and break into this world. I get the privilege of leading our weekend services team here at Chapel Hill. And this, this verse has shaped the way I understand the role of our worship leaders in the context of our worship services. You see, if, if you had no experience of, of church, no, under, no understanding, no background of church, and you just walked in on a weekend and you saw someone standing up here with a microphone and, and they have spotlights pointing at them, and their voice is amplified louder than anyone else's voices, and, and they have an organ and, and an orchestra and a choir and a band backing them up, and they're singing a song. If you were to walk in and see that, you would probably think, wow, that person's the star of the show. And in many ways, I wonder if that was what the religious leaders were thinking about John. They were looking at him, drawing these big crowds, and they were beginning to ask, does he think he's the star of the show here? Like, who does he really think he is. Now from the outside looking in, it might have looked like that. But John knew who he was on the inside. He knew that he wasn't a special somebody, that he was just a voice, that he was called to prepare the way for somebody to come. And our worship leaders, they know that that's their calling too. I know them all individually. I know where their hearts are at. And I I get the privilege of of leading worship myself. And and we don't have a desire to put the spotlight on ourselves. Every single one of us, our, our prayer, our hope, our cry to God every weekend is that through what we do, people would encounter the living God and would be changed as a result. Our role on the weekend is to prepare the way for the arrival of the King. And so when you see me up here doing my Pentecostal two-step dance, as my sister has termed it, I want you to know I'm not doing it to get your applause or your admiration. If I was, I'd probably take dance lessons. I'm doing it because I believe it helps prepare the way for God to come. You know, when Shannon's up here and she sings Revelation song, and it's this mind-blowing, wow, her voice is incredible. She's not doing it so you go, her voice is incredible. She's doing it because she believes it prepares the way for God to come and meet you. When one of our instrumentalists is doing a solo, they're not doing it so you go, wow, they're an amazing guitar player. 
Wow, Catherine plays the organ with tremendous skill. She's not doing it for that reason, so that you give her applause and plaudits. She's doing it because she believes it prepares the way for God's coming into your lives that you might meet with him. We are doing what we do up here because we believe that in the context we live in, with the gifts that we have been given, that this is how God has called us to prepare the way for his coming. I've got a few stories of how God's been at work using this. I want to share them with you. This, this week, Derek Mullen, Derek was playing the, you'll see him, we'll come back out, he's playing the electric guitar this morning. He's left-handed, so you can't miss him. He plays the guitar the wrong way around. Um, we, we just brought him on as a part-time music director. He leads our band at our modern services so that our worship leaders can really focus on leading worship and not have to worry about all the, all the instruments. He shared with me this, this week that he bumped into a man at Alpha, and this man said to him, hey, I'm, I'm so glad to, to finally see you. I just wanted to let you know, I, I started coming back to church and I'm reconnecting with God because of, because of your six-minute guitar solo that you did before Christmas. When Derek told me that, my jaw almost hit the floor. I was like, what? Someone's reconnecting with God because of your guitar solo? You see... Our guitar solos are not there. Our loud music, whether it's the organ that's loud or the band that's loud, our our, our incredible, beautiful vocalists, they're not there to entertain you. They're not there for your enjoyment. They're there because we believe God uses those gifts and those people to prepare the way for his coming so that those who don't yet know him, those who are far from him, can be brought close to him and can encounter him and be changed by him. God's using, God's using these, these people. Here's, here's another story, a neighbor of ours. She's, she's never been to church before. She comes from a, a country where Christians are persecuted. My wife invited her to come to Glow. Glow was our night with flashing lights and loud music and six-minute guitar solos and more Pentecostal two-step than your grandma's Pentecostal church. And she came and she loved it. So much so that last week when my wife was inviting all the mums at her bus stop to come to Alpha, this woman turned to all the other mums and said, you know what, Rachel's church is great. They were so welcoming. I can vouch for it. You guys should come to Alpha with me. And so this last Wednesday, all the mums at the bus stop came to Alpha, and this woman brought her husband too. And at the end of the night, her husband said, I've been exploring faith for a while. I think Alpha is the perfect place for me to explore. They're coming back this week, and it's not too late for you to join them and bring a friend. Here's one more story. As you all know, we changed things up at Christmas Eve a little bit this year. And many, many of you have let me know how much you enjoyed it, and some of you have let me know how strongly you disliked it. And we're listening, okay? We will adapt, we will make tweaks, we want your feedback. But nevertheless, when I showed up 10 days later on Saturday night to that prayer chapel over there, and there were four grown adult men sitting in that room ready to be baptized, men I'd never seen before in my life. And when I found out that these four men had shown up at Christmas Eve, and they each described how that night something had happened to them, something had moved them, and they come to a place where they realized, I need to change the way I'm going. I need to make a decision to follow Jesus, and I need to get baptized. When I heard that, I was blown away. 
I couldn't believe that God could enact that sort of life change in a moment in a worship service. Now, I believe God has called us on the weekends here at Chapel Hill to prepare the way for his coming so that people might meet with him. And I believe God is using our weekend services to break into people's lives, to change them, to transform them, to make them new creations in Christ. And I recognize that sometimes preparing the way may look different in our worship services now than it has done in the past. Honestly, a year ago, even a month or two ago, I really would have struggled with a six-minute electric guitar solo in a worship service. I would have gone, no, that's, that's performance. That's about the person up there. We're all supposed to look at him and what he's doing. That's not worship. And yet this last week when I heard that story, I realized you know what? God uses that for his kingdom purposes and his glory. I'm being pushed outside of my comfort zone. Many of the things that that I'm doing as we're leading these services are things that, that I don't feel necessarily comfortable doing. And yet as God is pushing me in my boundaries, he's breaking me out of my mold where I've said, God, this is what you can do and you, you can't work any other way. He's, he's pushing me to believe that he can work outside of the ways I've seen him work before. He's pushing me outside of my comfort zone. And I know he's pushing some of you outside of your comfort zone. As we've changed leadership up front, as we've changed seating arrangements, as we've changed volume levels. But I believe God is using this to break into people's lives here at Chapel Hill. We are a community who together are preparing the way for God's arrival into the lives of those who don't yet know him. And we all get to be a part of that. When you invite someone, when you welcome someone, when you serve, when you give, when you pray, when you expect that God is going to move in a way that you haven't seen him move before, you are a part of preparing the way for God's arrival in the lives of those who don't yet know him. And God is calling us to prepare the way, just like he called John to prepare the way. And you get to be a part of God using you to work out his purposes on this earth. So as we close, I want to invite us, we're going to sing one more song, but could we stand and pray before we do that? So would you close your eyes as we pray? If you're here this morning and you really are connecting with this third question, who, who are we? And, and you're saying, God, I want to be used by you. I, I want to be a part of your kingdom work in this world. I want you to use me. I, I want you to show me how to prepare the way. If, if that's you this morning and you connect with that, I want to pray for you here today. So maybe you could just stretch out your hands in front of you like you're ready to receive the divine appointments God has for you. And maybe there are some of you here this morning who who are, who really connected with that second point. 
and you realize you've been acting like the Savior in your own life, like the Christ, and you've got to give that up. And you've got to realize, you know what? It's about Jesus and what he's going to do, not about me and what I'm going to do. And if that's you, I want to invite you to put your hands out in front of you like you're letting go of something. I want to pray for both of those people, both of those groups of people here this morning as we finish. So God, I ask that you would now, by your spirit, enable us to let go of the things that we need to let go of. God, that you would help us to prepare the way for your coming, whether your coming is going to happen in our life or in the life of someone else. God, that you would give us the wisdom that we need to know how we can prepare the way. And God, I pray that we would see you act in bold and powerful ways, ways that we maybe haven't even imagined that you could possibly work in the past, that we would see you do something great in the future. Thunder in the desert, prepare for God's arrival. Make the road straight and smooth, a highway fit for our God. Fill in the valleys, level off the hills, smooth out the ruts, clear out the rocks. Then God's bright glory will shine and everyone will see it. Yes, just as God has said.